Well, now that you've settled comfortably in your chairs, if you would please stand. And we'll... uh, this morning we're going to be reading from uh, three different sections. So we're going to be reading in Ephesians chapter 2, and then Ephesians chapter 3, and then Colossians chapter 1. So if you turn to Ephesians 2, verses 18 through 22. For through him we both have access on one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into the holy temple of the Lord, in whom you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Then Ephesians chapter 3, verses 8 through 21. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles an unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan, the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be known, made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, and that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth and length, height and depth, and to know the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that everything he might be that in everything he might be preeminent. Maybe seated. All right, church, let's pray this morning as we begin here talking about the church. Uh, again, like previous weeks, uh, a lot can be said about the church. We're, we're, not, we're skimming, we're, we're hitting just a little bit, but hopefully we're hitting enough. This is going to be a, a flyover, uh, an overview. Um, I'm, they're probably not going to be like a ton of new information presented this morning. But I do hope that what's shared resonates with you if you are here a part of, a member of Christ's church. I pray that what we talk about this morning from God's word resonates with you. This this is pretty significant. You know, to go back to the song we sang earlier, telling the old, old story... A lot of what we're talking about this morning may be old news for some of you. But perhaps the old news needs to uh, stir you up, uh, refresh you, renew you, and remind you of who you are as a member of Christ's community. Okay? We're going to be talking about His church this morning. So with that in mind, would you join me in in a word of prayer? Lord, we've gathered today to hear from you. This is your word that we hold before us this morning. It's your word, your revealed word, your word of truth. We are deemed to be your people, the sheep of your pasture. And so this morning we pray that you would mold us and you would shape us by your good word. We would be a people shaped by your word. Change our hearts, renew our minds. Show us from your word what you have to say this morning about your church. 
Teach us what it is to be a member of the household of God. Remind us of the great privilege it is to be called a child of yours. We thank you, Lord, this morning for loving us, for keeping us, for sustaining us. We thank you, Lord, for sending your son and placing him as head over the church, the body of Christ. I pray this church this morning would tune her ear to hear the call of her captain, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. This morning, as we begin, I'd like to ask a question. We typically ask a question. It's good to think about a question and go to the text and see. This morning, we're going to go to several texts. We'll be pointing at different texts as we look at answering some of these questions and identifying some of the markers of Christ's church. When we think about this morning of how we go about identifying someone or how you go about identifying something. I was reminded of this uh, this past week. In fact, over the last couple of weeks, uh, I had an opportunity. I was, I was going to get a rental vehicle for, for the week. And as I went to get a rental vehicle, um, they needed to see my ID when I went to the counter. And they needed to verify who I was. I couldn't just say, my name's Steve, can I have a rental car? They needed to see my ID card. They needed to see a picture that looked something like me. They needed to see some information that they could, on their computer, I'm sure, track and be able to verify that this driver's license number of this individual matches someone who has this car of theirs at a BMV. I'm sure they've got BMV records and they're able to tell whether someone is licensed. I hope they do. If, some, if they're renting out cars, they need to make sure that the people that are renting them have a driver's license. And so how they go about identifying someone is through merely having the information. You know, this past week I was also uh, helping out I was, I was keeping, it was a different role for me. Instead of refereeing, I was helping out coaching. And one of the things I was doing actually on this particular day was I was, I was keeping the book at the, at the scores table. Well, in this particular game that the boys were playing, one of the teams they were playing, they had white jerseys. And three of these young men had white jerseys with no numbers. And so I had to, and in a real game setting kind of deal, uh, they would all have legal numbers. In this, this is more rec league, and it was uh, a situation where there were three young men who had white jerseys with no numbers. So I had to go about trying to figure out, how am I going to identify these three players? And so I wrote down for the one, I wrote a zero. He was going to be number zero because he just had a plain white jersey, nothing on it. There was another individual who had a white jersey, nothing on it. And, and I saw on his shoes, he had a, a, a blue swoop on his shoes. And so instead of a number, I, by him I put an N for Nike. He had some Nike shoes on. So that's how I identified him. And the other individual had a white jersey on, but it had a name on it. And that name began with an M. And so I, I just put M in for him. So I had three players that none of them had numbers, but I had to figure out a way, how was I going to identify these three players? And they got a foul called on them. How would I identify them? And so every time one of those numberless players scored a basket, I'm immediately looking at the shoes. Was it the guy with the blue swoop? Was it the guy with the M on his jersey? Or was it the guy who didn't have anything on his jersey? Now I knew exactly how to record things in the scorebook. It was a visual. I was able to visually see. You might also uh, recognize and know this uh, when someone is in a, what they call the lineup and the, there's some potential criminals and they're identifying who these people are. They visually, if they have seen them before, they visually are able to point them out. How we identify people. We, we have eyes. Lord's blessed us with eyes and we're able to see and we're able to visually figure out identification. I think also another area or way that we identify people is through 
our experience. How often have you identified your meal at a restaurant based on your first experience? Or perhaps that first experience was very poor customer service. And you've identified that place with a certain level of customer service. It could also be customer service very well done. And therefore you identify that place as a place you want to go back. It could be a place that you want to have others go to as well because it was so well done. How we go about identifying someone or something. Well, we're in week number seven of eight weeks in our series, What We Believe, right? We're talking about what we believe. And we've been working through our own statement of faith here at Hoping in Christ. We've been, we've been working through, uh, if you've read, and hopefully you have, I've tried to send out in the emails each week uh, that statement, that part of the statement of faith to have you read through that. And we've been asking the question each week, what does God have to say about? We talked about what he has to say about himself, what he has to say about his son Jesus, what he has to say about the Holy Spirit, what he has to say about the authority of the scriptures. What does God have to say about salvation? And last week we talked about what God has to say about the creation of man, the doctrine of man, the fall of man. Okay? Today we're going to look at what God has to say about the church. What does God think about his church? Has, has God provided any identification markers for his people in the biblical text to help us understand his church? How does God identify the church to us? You know, one of the questions, in fact, two questions I went ahead and put up front. Who is the church and what characterizes the church? Those are going to be a couple of questions we'll deal with up front. And these questions need to be understood from the perspective that these are universal questions. So when I say who is the church and what characterizes the church, we can go anywhere in the country, perhaps around the globe. And these things that I'm talking about for these two questions up front are going to be consistent, at least at some level, wherever we go. They ought to be. They are truths that we see here in the scripture. Who is the church? Who is the church? Now, if we were to ask that question and, and we were to define and answer that question from those on the outside, how might someone outside the church identify the church today? Have you ever thought about that? How does someone outside the church identify the church today? Let me give you 10 bullets. 10 bullets, and they all start with P. Okay? Ten, ten bullets, and you probably have heard some, if not all of these, in circles that you are around, all right? Some identify the church as a place, a place. And it's the question, it's where do they meet? The church is a place, the church is a building, right? And, and some of us, if we're not careful, we can fall into that same thinking, that we're going to church, I always like to insert building on that. We're going to the church building um, on that instead of we're going to the church because the church is made up of people, right? But those outside associate church with place, church as a location. Here's the second one, program, program. What do they do, right? And these are the folks that identify the church as a menu of programs to offer, a menu of programs, lots of programs. Church is a program. Collection of programs. Third, uh, some would describe the church as pleasant. And, then, and here we ask the question, what kind of people are they in general? I think some outside the church might say the church is made up of nice people. There's a lot of nice people there. There's some nice folks. They, they make me feel welcome when I came in the door. There's some nice people. By the way, that's not entirely a bad thing that they think that. <laughs> right? All of these aren't necessarily intended to be just bad things. These are just ways that church, people outside the church identify the church. Okay? Number four, problematic. Problematic. Why the need for church at all, some would say. I've had, I've had nothing but bad experiences, and therefore the church is problematic. And, and these are the folks who identify the church and define the church by their own past experience. You ever encountered someone like that? Who, who places their definition of the church 
It's rooted and established and based upon their own bad experience. Number five, pesky. Pesky. Why are these people, why do they keep bothering me? Why do they keep after me? And these are the folks who, who identify the church as annoying. <laughs> it's an annoying group of people. Number six, pathetic. Don't these people have anything better to do? Some would define and identify the church as unnecessary here. Uh, a waste of time. What are you doing? Next one is proclamation. And, and, and it's interesting here because even those outside the church understand that there's a, a word that gets preached. When I talk about proclamation, the emphasis here upon what gets preached. What gets preached. And so here they identify the church through the message or through the sermon that's preached. And this is closely connected to the next one, which is personality. And personality is who's preaching. Not what gets preached, but who's preaching. And it's here where some identify the church by the personality of the one preaching. Number nine, some would identify the church as pointed. How can they really believe that Jesus is the only way? These are the folks who define the church as too narrow-minded. Old-fashioned, some might say. Not up with the times. And then tenth and final, prosperity. Why are they always asking for money? Now, where would they get that idea, church? Watching the TV, maybe? Maybe? Always asking for money. And these are the folks who, who define the church as, as this get-rich-quick scheme, a group of greedy peddlers of the word. Now, those ten things, standing in contrast to how others identify the church, how do the scriptures identify us? I want to give you some New Testament, uh, New Testament scripture markers. This was an interesting exercise. I encourage you to do the same thing. Take an opportunity at some point to go through the New Testament. And as you go through the New Testament, I'm not asking you to read the entirety of the New Testament on this particular occasion, although that is a great thing to do as well. But read simply the first few verses of every New Testament book. And at the beginning of every New Testament book, there's going to be a two, usually, in most of the letters, two. Remember, the two is going to be at the beginning, not, not at the end, right? It's two, two, two. Who's he writing the letter to? And what we see is a really incredible list of descriptors of the church. Romans 1, beloved of God, called to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1, those who are sanctified, called to be saints. 2 Corinthians 1, to the church of God which is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in Achaia, bigger region. Galatians 1, to the churches of Galatia. Ephesians 1, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now listen, as I'm reading these, I'm giving you biblical markers of what the Bible has to say about who we are. That's who we are. They're identifying who we are. Philippians 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops or elders and deacons. James 1, to the 12 tribes that are scattered. 1 Peter 1, to the pilgrims. We're pilgrims. 2 Peter 1, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Jude 1, to those who are called, sanctified, and preserved in Jesus Christ. See, the New Testament writers, they wrote to specific local churches, many of them. Places that you could identify on the map. They wrote to regions or general areas like Galatia, Achaia, right? And they also identified the church with clarity. The beloved of God, the saints, that's a familiar one. That's, that's one that's repeated on many occasions. The saints, the saints. Another word for that phrase or descriptor of that would be holy ones, set apart ones, okay? Those who are sanctified, the faithful, pilgrims, elect, 
Those who have obtained like precious faith, those preserved in Jesus. How else might the scriptures identify us as the church? Remember, who is the church? Well, those markers that we just read are helpful. Let me give you a couple others. How about Romans 10, 9 and 10? If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead, you will be what, church? Saved. You will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Who's the church? The church is made up of those who confess with their mouth the Lord Jesus. The church is made up of those who believe in their heart that God has raised this Jesus from the dead. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who is the church? Those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ. Those who have crossed over, the Bible says, from death to life. Those who look to the Son and live. Okay, I'm giving you different images and different metaphors, different pictures. John 1, 12 and 13, But as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born of God. Who is the church? It's made up of those who receive Jesus, those who believe in his name, those who are born again. Remember John 3, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, You must be born again. These biblical identification markers are true of Christ followers everywhere. This is not exclusive to Hope in Christ Church. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the Bible says. And the Bible paints, by the way, a picture of diversity of the church in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, where it says all nations, tribes, and tongues... And we get this picture of them standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed with white robes. Pretty diverse group of people. In addition to identifying who this church is, it's important also to identify the what. What is it that characterizes the church of Jesus Christ? You walk into a church building around the world, meet church folks at the store. What do they look like? What are, what are the general characteristics of one who belongs to Christ's church. Let me give you a few of them, okay? And these are going to go quickly. Again, this is, this is intended to be an overview, but I'm praying and hoping it's a helpful overview so we know who we are in Christ as a part and as a member of his church. First of all, the one who is a part of the church is salty. He's salt. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 tells us that you are the salt of the earth. Salt preserves, salt flavors, salt seasons. Salt was a valuable commodity in the day, wasn't it? They would trade with with salt. It was worth something. You're the salt of the earth. When you see someone who's a part of the church, they ought to be salty. There ought to be some life in them, some flavor, some seasoning in them. They add something to that which is needed here on earth. Well, see, salt is closely connected to the next one, and that is light. Not only is he salt, but he's light. And that's Matthew 5, 14 through 16. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. By the way, when Jesus is preaching and teaching in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, he's not preaching to one person. He's preaching to a group of collected people, a multitude, the Bible says. Oftentimes we say and think about this passage in connection with an individual. You are the light of the world. You, you as an individual... Is it not also true that the church is intended to be the salt and the light? I want you to think about the church, your part in that, being a member of Christ's church, being light. Light is intended to shine, church. Light is not intended to be hidden. And we're likened to, in that passage, a city on a hill intended to shine brightly. Our light shining is intended to point others to the God we serve. Amen? That's what it's for. You are the light. You are salt. You are light. Here's the third one. What's he look like? If you see him, he promotes unity. That's the third one. He promotes unity. Salt, light, he promotes unity. 
John 17 prayed about this very thing. When Christ was going to the cross, he prayed. The last thing he prayed, he's praying about the unity of those who follow after him. He's praying that we might all be one. Our oneness is to be like that of Jesus and the Father. Do you know how close that oneness is? Jesus and the Father. He prayed that our oneness would be in him like his is with the Father. And he also prayed that our oneness with one another would be close-knit together. So that, here's why. So that the world would know and so that the world would see and believe that God sent Jesus down here. That it's true. That's how important our unity is. And Jesus prayed to that end before he went to the cross. So when you see someone and you ask the general characteristics, what, what does this person look like who's a part of the church, a member of the church? He's salty, he's shining light, and he's promoting unity. Here's the fourth one. He proclaims truth. He proclaims truth. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15 says that the church is the pillar and the truth. Right? It's, it's, it's the living truth. It's the pillar. It's the ground. It's the foundation of truth. And Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified and set apart by the truth. And he went on and defined what that truth is. He says, your word is truth. The Bible also tells us in Ephesians that it's this truth that we are to speak to one another. Here's why. Because we are now members of one another. We truth in love toward one another is what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 4. Do we do that? Well, that's who we are. That's a general characteristic of who we are. Here's the fifth and final one I want to give to you on general characteristics. You see somebody, not only are they salt and and light and, and promoting unity, and not only are they proclaiming truth, but they are witnesses to Jesus. He's a witness. When you see this person, you ought to be able to recognize he's a witness. He's a witness. I know there's lots of different witnesses out there today. Amen? Lots of different witnesses out there. We need to be real clear on who we're witnessing to. The Bible says that we are to be witnesses to Jesus all of our days. Acts 1.8. Wait for the power. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. The power from on high, power from the Holy Spirit. Wherever you go, when you see a follower of Jesus, you can identify him and ought to be able to identify him by his witness. Are you unashamed to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there anything different about this person that would mark him as a child of God and not a child of the world? So we have salt, light, unity, truth, witness. These are general characteristics of one who is a a member of Christ's church. Okay? By the way, the church... If we were just to define and give a, a handhold definition, uh, let's, let's go with this. There's all kinds of different ones that probably could be put out there. But let's put this forward. A community of God's redeemed or called out people. Consumed with giving God glory in all things. Remember the Bible passage, whatever you do. Okay? So we're consumed in giving God glory in all things, all our days. Or as we said in Hebrews in our study last year, all the way to the finish line, right? We're consumed. It's a, it's a redeemed community, a called out people by God, consumed with giving God glory in all things, all of our days. So who is the church? General characteristics. These are all really what we would term under the umbrella of universal. These ought to be characteristic of all of us in Christ, wherever we are. But I'd like to to turn our attention here for just a moment to uh, the local church. What about the local church? What about hope in Christ? How is a a local body identified? We want to keep that same idea in terms of identification. How how is a local body identified? And so I want to give you a few things to consider with this. Here's the first thing. And it's got to be the first thing. Uh, we, we, We need to be identified with a person. We need to be identified with a person. Again, this is so basic. I hope this is basic. But the local body ought to be identified with a person. That person, church, is whom? Jesus. Okay? Jesus. He's the reason that we're here today. 
He's the reason that we've gathered in this place. He's been placed as head, the Bible says, over the church. And by the way, I didn't make that up. Okay? In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, he put all, God did, God put all things under his feet, that's Jesus' feet, gave him to be head over all things to the church. Okay? The church, which is his body. You see the metaphor? Christ is the head, we're the body. Okay, so person, this is about a person. When someone comes in our building, this is the building we're renting for a time. When they come in the building and they experience the church, the redeemed community of God's called out people who are all about giving God glory in all things, all their days, what they experience and hear about is a person. And we've got to make sure they hear about Jesus. You see, those on the outside can come up with quite a long list. I gave you 10 earlier of how to identify the church. None of the identification markers on that list really pointed to the person of Jesus, did they? They might know his name, they might know about him, but they don't typically associate the church with a gathering to worship and exalt the name of Jesus. When people walk inside this building on a Sunday morning, do they get the sense that this people takes seriously the name of Jesus. Listen, this, there are ramifications for that question. There are lots of things that could be talked about underneath that question. Such as our preparations for coming in to the Lord's house on a Sunday morning. How do we approach coming in? Do we enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise? Do we say like the psalmist, I was glad when they said to me, let's go into the house of God and let's worship. Or do we come in here haggard, half asleep, not prepared, not desiring at all to worship the King of Kings? That's why we've come. We ought to be on high alert. High alert. We have an opportunity today. The Lord has given to us another opportunity to worship. What a privilege. So do they hear the name of Jesus, this person? Is it unmistakable that Jesus is the reason for our gathering? I, I pray that our local assembly here gets this one right. That we've come to celebrate Jesus, to honor him, to worship Christ, to praise his name, to give him thanks for saving us. So the person, that's the first one. Here's the second one. When we think about a local church... Power. Power. If the church is God's redeemed community of people, then the power and presence of God ought to be present in the gathering. Amen? Anybody, I hope we don't disagree with that. It's a redeemed community, a blood-bought community. We've come together to worship the Lord. We're talking about the person, but there ought to be and need be present this power, and this power is evident in and through the person of the Holy Spirit residing within each follower, each church member, each one who professes the name of Jesus. You want a picture of the power of God at work in the life of his church? All you need to do really is read the book of Acts. If you haven't done it lately, I encourage you to read it. Read the book of Acts. Witness the power of God at work through the preached word. Witness the power of God at work through changed lives. Witness the power of God at work through men and women bearing testimony of the great things that God has done for them. Romans 1.16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why is he not ashamed of the gospel of Christ? For it is the power of God to salvation. It's the power of God. The gospel. The good news. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and what? Powerful. It's living and powerful. Do we treat his word as such? As living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Penetrating, piercing, dividing. Judging the thought and the tense of the heart. It's a powerful word. If we let it get in us. 
Acts 1.8, but you shall receive what? Power. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And with that power, you are then to be witnesses. Listen, you cannot be an effective witness. Uh, Maybe should I go so far as to say a witness at all without the power of the Holy Spirit operating in you. So we have a person, we have power. Here's the third one. Practice. Practice. Here's, I want to talk about a few things here with practice. When someone comes into this local assembly, what might you expect to find? What does this church practice? Let me just give you four things under the umbrella of practice. Okay? Again, I'm trying to be helpful for you to remember these. Okay? The first one is exalt. What do I mean by exalt? Exalt. We're exalting this person we talked about earlier. We're exalting the name of Jesus. We exalt him in song. Be thou my vision. All right? I love to tell the story. Oh, church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. We exalt the name of Jesus in our worship, in song. We exalt the name of Jesus in the word. Right? This time right now that we're in the middle of. We exalt the name of Jesus in our prayer time as we intercede on behalf of one another. We exalt the name of Jesus as we partake of the bread and the cup and remember what Jesus did for us at the cross. We exalt the name of Jesus and we worship him as we have fellowship oftentimes on an afternoon. That fellowship, remember, is the koinonia. It's what we share in common. And what we share in common goes right back to that person we talked about, Jesus. Okay? So exalt. Does the church practice exalting the name of the Lord? Here's the the next one. Edify. What do we practice? We ought to be practicing exalting, worshiping the Lord. We ought to be practicing edifying or building up is another term we could use in there. Building up. Edifying. Who are we edifying? Edifying primarily other believers in Jesus. This is intended to edify other believers in Jesus. The Bible does say that those who come in, they can also catch a little bit of what's going on and the Lord can save them in the process. But what we do on a Sunday morning is intended to build up and edify the believers, the body. And we see in the scripture all those one another's, right? Serve one another, bear with one another, love one another. There's a long list of one another's. How we are to edify and encourage, stir up one another to love and good works, exhort one another, and so much the more as the day approaches. When you come on a Sunday morning, is your speech edifying in this manner? Think about the words you use on a Sunday when you're here, when you're gathered together with God's people. What are you talking about? What's coming out of your mouth? Is your speech edifying? Are your thoughts edifying? As you sit here even right now, are you thinking about what God has to say in his word? Or are you thinking about what's for lunch today? Are you thinking about so-and-so sitting down the aisle or sitting what you're going to do afterwards? Or Are these edifying? Are these building up? Are you stirring anyone up here in the body to fervency in the things of the Lord? Are you building others up with your speech or are you tearing them down with your speech? See, the local church should be a place where brothers and sisters are mutually encouraged and built up in the faith. Does the church practice edifying one another? Here's the third one. Think about the local assembly, the local church. We'll give an extra word here. And it's exercise discipline. Discipline. No discipline seems pleasant for the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. We oftentimes don't like this word discipline. We, we tend to shy away from it, remove ourselves, avoid it. But you know, the local body, the local assembly, according to what God says in his word, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, those are a few passages that are helpful as we think about church discipline, the discipline that occurred in the body. One of the first and probably the most severe discipline in the church happened right in the beginning. You read Acts, church, and, and, and Acts 5, it's pretty major discipline. Do you remember those folks, Ananias and Sapphira? Uh, This wasn't a slap on the wrist, was it? 
That's a pretty serious thing. And you know, after they both dropped dead and died, the Bible says that great fear sees the church. I, I think that would do it. Church discipline, exercising discipline. What's the purpose? In short, discipline is, is, is set forth in the local assembly out of love. It's, it's set forth to warn. It's set forth to protect the purity of Christ's church. But it's always intended to be carried out to restore. Not to push away, but to restore that brother or sister. And the church that doesn't practice discipline, I believe in many ways, has low, a low view of sin. Because remember, we're, as a part of his church, God is a holy God. He says, be holy because I'm holy. So how then can we allow sin to just go on without anybody talking about it, without anybody exhorting one another to holy living? The church is to be a place where discipline is exercised. Does the church practice this? Here's the fourth one, and that is evangelize. Evangelize. We think about what we practice. We evangelize, specifically unbelievers. Right? And this is where our witness comes into play. Matthew 28, go! Make disciples of all the nations... Acts 2 and and forward, we see in the book of Acts this pattern of evangelizing to the lost. The Bible says that we are called to be fishers of men. The church is called to make disciples. The church is an outpost declaring the name of Jesus to those within reach of her. The church takes the name of Jesus with her wherever she goes. The church bears the name of Jesus and the church boldly proclaims his name that others might be saved from this perverse generation. So the local church practices exalting, and that's worship, edifying, building up, exercising discipline, and evangelizing. So we think about identifying markers of the local church. We rally around a person. His name is Jesus Christ. We're fueled by his power and sources the Holy Spirit. And we have his powerful word at our disposal. Amen? And we practice what the word teaches us. But finally, I think it's important to put forward, we also see a pattern evident within the local church. In fact, the Bible speaks of two patterns that are identified within the context of the local church. So, I'll move number four up here, and it's a pattern. I'll go ahead and make it plural, so we're going to talk about two of them. Here's the first one. Lord's Supper. Pattern number one. Actually, let me scratch that. Hold that. I'm going to go this other direction first. Pattern number one, let's, let's talk leadership structure. Leadership structure. Let's go there first. How is the local church biblically governed? What is the biblical pattern? Is there anything in here in God's word that would say how his church is to be governed? Any delegated authority that God's given to his church, his local assembly. Well, I do believe as we look at the scripture, we see God has delegated his authority to elders and deacons. Those are the two folks that we see in the scripture. Elders and deacons. Okay, Elders, plural. Deacons, plural. Right? Pretty simple. Elders, 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, you can read all about them. Acts 20, verse 28. Paul speaking to the elders in, 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 in Ephesus, there in Miletus. 1 Peter 5, those are some scriptures and specifically thinking about elders. Who are these elders? In short, these elders are people, are men who guide, lead, feed, and shepherd. That's what they do. They've been delegated. They've been set apart. They've been placed in his church, Christ's church, to guard the flock, lead the flock, to feed the flock. From the word, and to shepherd the flock under their care. Okay? What about a deacon? A deacon, short way to remember a deacon is a servant. A deacon is a servant in the local assembly who's primarily 
keeping watch over the needs in the flock, has a pulse on what's happening in the flock, can help meet needs and, and partners with the elders to see that the needs are being met in the body. Hebrews 13, 7 speaks of both the rulers, the leaders, and the church. In Hebrews 13, 7, says this. I'm going to read 7 and 13, uh, 7 and 17, excuse me. Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. Verse 17. Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Now, we don't like those terms today. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So we see here in Hebrews 13, 17, that the rulers have this objective of watching out for the souls under their care. Pretty high bar, huh? And the flock itself also has a responsibility to obey, to be submissive to those under their care. Now, obviously, there's, there's probably an asterisk in there somewhere in terms of if, if you've got wicked, uh, abusive leaders in place. Okay? I, I know some of you, that's where your minds are going. Well, what if? Right? Yes, there, there, there's that asterisk there. But in general, the general pattern... What we see in the scripture, that this is what's called for, for us as elders. That we're to be leading in this way, watching out for your souls. Listen, if we're watching out for your souls, there's probably going to be something that's said, something that's done. You may not like something that's said. It may hurt a little bit what's said. Hopefully what we say, we say with tact, with love, with care. But hopefully what we say, we're saying so that you are growing in Christ. It's our desire to see that everyone in the body is maturing in Christ. So understand that as we, and if we need to, speak, rebuke, exhort, come alongside. That's, that's what he's given pastors and leaders in the church to do. To equip the body, right? Equip the saints for what? The works of ministry. So that you'd be prepared for every good work. All right, so that's the first pattern, the leadership pattern. Here's the other one. Ordinances. I use that word as opposed to sacraments. Sacraments, for some of us, have maybe a different connotation to it, right? I saw, I saw one face kind of, uh, yeah. That's, that's sort of the, the feel for me, too. So uh, ordinances, okay? Ordinances. When we talk about ordinances, uh, what are we talking about? These visual symbols instituted by Jesus himself, carried out by the local church. That's why we're talking about them under the banner of the local church, right? This is really, when we talk about ordinances, it's the ordaining authority, someone said, of Christ, which lies behind the practice of what we're doing, okay? So what are these two ordinances? By the way, we practice them both here at Hope in Christ. Lord's Supper is the first one, okay? Lord's Supper. We practice the Lord's Supper weekly. Someone comes in, they're going to notice that every week we practice the Lord's Supper weekly. Every Sunday, every Lord's Day. The Bible says, for as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup. As often, as often as you do it. The Bible actually doesn't say, like, put a hammer down and say, you must do this every week. But we practice it each week. As often as we come together, we practice the Lord's Supper we partake of the Lord's Supper together. You see, this is something that ties into what we talked about earlier about the unity of the body. We are, listen, we are connected together as parts of the body, members together, connected to the head, Christ, and in the Lord's Supper, we partake. Do you notice that we take in unison? Do you ever think about that? One of the reasons we take in unison, it goes back to the scriptures. You remember in, in Corinthians I think it's in the previous chapter that talked about, you know, some of the things that was going on. They were coming together and what were they doing? They were just eating it up, drinking it up. They were having a good old time. They weren't waiting for each other. They were feeding their flesh. We come together and partake of the bread and we drink of the, of the cup together. We do it in unison. It, it's a unity binding thing that we do it as a church, as a local assembly. And we also make mention that when there are other Believers in Jesus who are with us on a Sunday. 
we encourage them to partake with us because this is a meal that we partake together of as a member of Christ's body. Okay, Lord's Supper. We partake to remember Jesus. What are we remembering? We're remembering his love that's expressed toward us through his death on the cross. In short, that's what we remember. And we're also remembering in that time that his return is imminent. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. That's why we do what we do. We're remembering Christ. Not only what he did, but also right now what it means to be in Christ. I'm partaking of the the bread and drinking of the cup. This ought to mean something. It's supposed to mean something for me. I'm getting strengthened. I'm getting nourished as I partake in this, not just as an individual, but I'm partaking together as a family of God. And I'm also reminded of one day Christ is coming back. Every time I eat the bread and drink the cup, it's a reminder. And we as a church are proclaiming that reminder that Jesus is coming back. Amen? That's a good thing. Luke 22, Corinthians 11, places you can go read about that, the Lord's Supper. Here's the second ordinance, and that's baptism. Baptism. We practice what's called believer's baptism. I'm just giving you some general terminologies, okay? Believer's baptism. As opposed to maybe maybe on the other end, uh, another idea or thought that's out there is, is infant baptism. Okay, that's, that's something that's, that's out there as well. We practice believer's baptism. We don't say that there's an age. You don't have to be 10 years old before you can be baptized. We don't say that. The Bible doesn't give us an age. Okay? It's good when the Bible doesn't give us great clarity that we don't necessarily drive that stake in the sand and make it clarity. Uh, we, we try to stay with what the scripture has to tell us about this. And so this ordinance that Christ himself took part in. And we see that in Matthew chapter 3. We see it in Mark chapter 1. Okay? We see these different places where Christ himself modeled for us the importance of baptism. He himself was baptized, right, by John. And he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness, the scripture says. That was why he did that. He went forward with that. We practice what's called this believer's baptism. And it's one who has an understanding of what's happened, having been brought from death to life. Do you have an understanding of what's happened in you? Believer's baptism. Are you of age to understand what's happened? And for some, that might be a younger age. For some, it might take some time. Okay? We practice full immersion. We think about baptism. I'm telling you what we practice. This is good that you know what we practice. Some of you may not know this, may not get this. So this is what we practice. It's full immersion as opposed to, on the other end, might be something like sprinkling. You know, tossing some water on you. We, in a baptism setting, we go under the water. And we believe the Bible actually gives us this, this symbolism, this picture Okay, of, and Romans 6, 3 and 4 gives us this picture. The symbolism of, of going down, right? When we get into the water, we're going down, we're dying, symbolic of death. We go under the water, symbolic of burial, right? We come up out of the water, symbolic of being raised to life, okay? So baptism in its uh, symbolism, that's the picture there that we practice in baptism, Okay? Baptism is generally seen in the scriptures as our first act of obedience to the grace of God in our lives. Our first act of obedience. You read through the book of Acts and you're going to come across it, you're going to come across it, you're going to come across it. And they were baptized. In fact, Acts 2, 38, Peter says at the end when they say, oh, their brothers were cut to the heart, what shall we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent and be what? Baptized. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Be baptized. A little bit later in Acts chapter 8, remember Philip and the eunuch? And they're driving along, driving along in their chariot. And the eunuch who's now understanding the scripture from Isaiah is a wonderful passage. And Philip has just explained the gospel to him. And the eunuch sees water. What's he do? You remember? Stops the chariot. Hey, there's water. What's keeping me from being baptized? He, He understood. He understood this is not an option. This is something the Lord's called me to. We think about baptism. What is baptism? An identification mark. That's what we've been talking about this morning. How do we identify the church? Baptism in itself is an identification marker with Christ and with his church. With Christ and with his church. It's an outward sign to the body that I am now setting my life apart to walk with Jesus. I remember the day, March 31, 1985. I was 13 years of age. My father baptized me in the church where I grew up. 
March 31. I'm on the anniversary, coming up on it. March 31, 1985. And I remember it. And maybe some of you in here remember that day when you were baptized. I want to remind you this morning of the time you were baptized. And if you've not been baptized and you're professing the name of Jesus, I'm going to call your attention to the significance of baptism. Please come and see me when we're done today because if that's something you have not yet done, if that's something you've put off, I want to let you know from the Bible, the Bible would call us to be baptized. Calls us to this. See, when one goes into the water and is baptized before the witnesses of the local assembly, see, that does something not just for you, it does something and it's intended to do something as well for the body of Christ. Amen? That never gets old to me. When I see someone go under the water and come up out of the water, I, that, that whole symbolism picture of being raised to newness of life and they are now setting their lives apart to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Church, that is good. And we ought to be exhorting and encouraging those folks who've been baptized to keep on walking with Jesus. Two patterns evident within the local church. Leadership structure, right? We see leadership structure. We see the ordinances. And underneath ordinances, we have Lord's Supper and baptism. Now, we're going to finish by just applying what we've learned about Christ church. We're just going to apply it and we're going to be done, okay? So hang in there. Final stretch. We're just about there. Applying what we've learned. And I'm just going to apply these uh, through the means of questions. Questions about what we've already talked about. But they're personal application questions for you to think about and consider. Here's the first one. Are you a member of Christ's church? Now, before you go anywhere with that question, I was intentional about putting the word member in there. Member is a biblical word. It's a biblical word. Ephesians talks about this you're no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with the saints and members there it is members of the household of God are you a member of Christ's church have you as Romans 10 9 and 10 says have you confessed with your mouth the Lord Jesus have you believed in your heart that God has raised Jesus from the dead if so then you are saved if you believe that Have you believed in Jesus and received him to be Lord in your life? Have you been born again, as John 1 talks about and John 3 speaks of? Have you looked to the Son for your salvation, for your life eternal? John 3.16. Are you a member of Christ's church? Second question. Are, as a member of Christ's body... That's another metaphor that I put in there. Body. It's, a, it's a biblical metaphor to body. As a member of Christ's body, do you participate regularly in the life of this assembly? Do you participate regularly in the life of this assembly? Hebrews chapter 10 leads us to believe that there was an issue and a problem there amongst the people as this letter was being written. Let us consider one another in order... To stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Now you get the idea that this was going on. And he's exhorting them to not give up meeting together. It's something we should be doing. Do we participate regularly in the life of this assembly? Are we exalting the name of Jesus? Are we edifying one another, stirring one another up? Are we submitting to Christ's church? We're to submit ourselves to one another in reverence and fear of the Lord. Are we evangelizing the lost? See, the church is not a club. Some have said it's a voluntary organization, and while it may be a voluntary organization, it's also a household of faith. It's a body of believers in Jesus it's not an option it's not a social network primarily it's not a social network socializing happens 
fellowship happens in the context of the body of Christ, and that's a good thing. But we don't gather together primarily to talk about the latest news, weather, sports, events, politics, events of the day. That's not why we gather. The church is a community of God's redeemed, called out people, consumed with giving God glory in all things, all the way to the end. Here's third question. Are the general characteristics that were spoken of, that's right here, general characteristics, are the general characteristics spoken of describing the church, do these describe you? Are you salty? Is your conversation seasoned with salt when you speak to others? Are you shining the light of Christ wherever you go? Are you preserving the unity of Christ? Listen, we could go a long, long time on this one. Are you preserving the unity of Christ? And I'll just, I'll just keep it to this one area as you think about application question. Preserving the unity of Christ. Are you making sure that with your lips, with your tongue, you are not sowing discord among the brethren? By the way, in Proverbs chapter 6, that's one of the seven things God hates. Why does he hate it? Because it goes against what he's all about, and that's unity. That's what he prayed for. Are you proclaiming the truth of Jesus found in his word? Are you being a witness to Jesus? Fourth and final question. Really, it's a two-part question. Do you love the church? Do you love this church? Do you love the church? And before you answer that question completely, recall what God did through Jesus to purchase the church. If you are in Christ, if you are a member of Christ's church, you have been bought with a price, the Bible says, right? Christ is the head, and the church is to be submissive to her head. And the church recognizes the authority of Christ, acknowledges the love of Christ, captures the vision of Christ for his bride. There's another metaphor, his church. A glorious church, sanctifying her, cleansing her by the washing in the word. A pure church, holy, without blame, nourishing her, cherishing her, members of his body. By the way, all those things are found in Ephesians chapter 5, 22 to 33. And we oftentimes see that as a passage that's held forward for husbands and wives and for marriage. And it is a good passage to go to and turn to for that. Under the husband, we see he's called to love and to lead. Under the wife, we see that she's called to submit and respect. And the shadow that's talked about in the text is marriage. But the reality, friends, is Christ and the church. Our marriages are to represent Christ and his church. The love and the leadership that's required of the husband is the love and leadership of Christ toward his church the submission of respect required of the wife toward her husband is the submission and respect required of the church toward Christ. Revelation 19, 5 through 9 gives us a picture of this marriage of the Lamb. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. I was reminded of the words of a song. Is that wedding music I hear? The bride's adorned and ready to appear. There's heavenly preparations for a wedding celebration. A little later it says, the groom says, come my child, come on in. I love the song. Can you hear the wedding music? See, the church of Jesus Christ dressed in white, a pure church, a sanctified church, a set-apart church, a church that's called to practice purity in these days as we wait for the wedding music. Do you love Christ? Do you love His church? Listen, to say that you love His church means that you love His redeemed, called-out people. To love His church means that you also have a love and a heart for those who are outside His church because that's the heart of Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. Do you love his church? By the way, love is an action. 
It's an act of the will. You know, I'm afraid that some have tried to say yes to Jesus without any or very little connection to his church. I'll say that again. I think some have tried to say yes to Jesus without any or very small, very minimum effort in loving Christ's church. Does your life give evidence that you really love Christ and his church? I close with this, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees to the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family, listen to this, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Family. Listen, I want you to know as we close this this morning, there's nothing quite like being a part of the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your church. This church for which your son Jesus died. As parts and members of your church here at Hope in Christ. Lord, I pray we would know who we are. Whose we are. I pray we would know and understand what it is that characterizes us as your church. As your body. And Lord, I pray that we would desire to be a part of this family of God. As members of this household of faith, I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit, through the power residing in us, working through us, as we open your word, this powerful word, as we abide in that word, Lord, that you would move us in such a way that we would look like and and we would be able to be identified as your church. I pray, Lord, that people on the outside, that they wouldn't see those ten things primarily we talked about earlier, but instead they would see what we actually talk through from the Word, that we would see people, flesh and bones people, actually desiring to walk in the newness of life that you've given and provided for us through Christ. Oh, Lord, may our lives be salty. May they shine brightly. May our lives together promote unity. May we uphold and stand upon the truth as a church. We are the pillar and ground of the truth. And may we uphold your truth in all things, even when it costs us. Father, I pray we would be found to be witnesses to Jesus all of our days. Remind us that we are a redeemed people, a blood-bought people. We who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Jesus. And Father, when we gather together on Sunday, wherever we may gather and meet throughout the week, I pray that people would see in us that we are all about exalting a person whose name is Jesus. May we be unashamed to speak the name of Jesus wherever we go. We thank you, Lord, for your church. Teach us, Lord, what it is to be a part of your church. Grow us in our understanding of what it is to be a part of your church. I pray, Lord, that you would grow your church and you would add to your church as we see in the scripture. That's your work. You add to your church. I believe you add as you see your people being faithful to your word and obedience. May this group be an obedient, faithful people to your word. I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.